sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines, the show where sports and faith intersect. We are joined this week by Ben Zausmer, Assistant General Manager of the New York Mets and well-known as the author of this book right here, Oscar Metrics, the professional who knows exactly who's going to win the Oscars. So a little bit about faith, a little bit about baseball, a little bit about movies. Ben, good to see you. Thanks for being on the show. Good to see you as well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so... uh, I heard about you actually uh, just a couple of months ago, um, and you have so many interesting storylines through baseball, through faith, through movies, but let's actually start with the movies, because I think that's where uh, you began your fame here. Um, You you love movies, you love the Oscars, and you decided to use your amazing ability at math to uh, predict the Oscars. So maybe just take us into uh, how you got into that business of predicting the Oscars, and I believe a couple of years ago, being 20 out of 21, which is a pretty good percentage. Yeah, so this all started uh, about 10 years ago. I was a freshman in college, and right, I'd always been a big Oscars fan, a big movies fan, and uh, I was just curious who was going to win that year. So I went to Google, and being a math guy, I wanted to see, like, is there a model to predict the Oscars? And I actually couldn't find one. Uh, and so I decided to just spend the month of January trying to create it myself. Spent lots of time gathering data from every old press release I could find on the internet and then threw together some models, put up the predictions on a little website. And it's all grown out of that. And the years since I've gotten to do the predictions for The Hollywood Reporter and write articles for a number of publications. You mentioned the book and uh, it's become this big fun hobby of mine every uh, every baseball offseason i get to dive into oscars season uh and we're coming up on another one the nomination's coming out in a week or so so uh it's uh this will be year 11 and did you think it was going to work uh yes and no uh, <laughs> that uh the math is predicting probabilities and mm-hmm. So hopefully if the probabilities are well calibrated then at least uh if not going perfect if you say there's a 60% chance of this nominee winning in this category, then hopefully that'll happen three out of five times. That's what that should mean. Uh, and so there are always going to be predictions that are correct because a lot of favorites win. And there are always going to be upsets because sometimes the favorites don't win. And uh, do you predict the weather too? <laughs> if only. That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what is applied math for those uh, non-mathematicians out there? Uh, what, what does it look like? You mentioned probabilities. Is it only that or is something deeper? Applied math is sort of the more real-world counterpart of theoretical math. So uh, the more theoretical side, which is you know often taught in the classrooms and in universities, is about the underlying theories of why numbers behave the way they do, uh, and that can be anything from you know algebra to geometry to trigonometry to calculus. A lot of this stuff is theoretical, but it all has applications in the real world uh, in stuff that we see every day. Uh, Obviously, in the computer age, there's been an explosion of applications of mathematics. But even before that, there have been all sorts of applications. The times where you actually put real numbers and real world people and problems to these theories, that's where you get into the applied math side. I have a particularly fun pair of uh, job and hobby because I get to apply math to a couple of things that are 
really interesting to me in baseball and movies. There's stuff that I'd be reading about even if it wasn't my job or wasn't this project I've taken on. Uh, and so for me to get to apply math to those things is particularly fun. Actually, Dan Schulman from ESPN said, uh, you got to love what you do and do what you love. And it sounds like you do exactly that. Um, so let's go from movies to baseball. And then we're going to go backwards towards faith. Um, how does applied math work in baseball? And is that a new business? You never really saw, you know, oh, director of analytics for baseball usually said, you know what, this guy can hit the ball, this guy can field the ball, I want him on my team. But now it's a much, it's, it's almost like a science of building a team. How does that work in the baseball world? It, it is fairly new, right? So baseball really goes back to the 19th century. And for a long, long time, there were a number of people, journalists and writers who we're using math or using data, using numbers to analyze the games. You know, you've had box scores being printed in the newspapers for years and years and years. And you have some, not just counting stats, but some statistics in there, like batting average and ERA. Those were some of the early strides towards uh, creating a formal mathematical language around the game of baseball. But it didn't really start to enter front offices until the late 90s or so. And then you have the publication of Moneyball. Uh, that book mm -hmm. came out in the early 2000s. And after that, there's been an explosion of it where every team wanted to have some form of Moneyballs, have some sort of analytics department. And so these departments have really grown rapidly. If you look through any front office page on their website, the number of people with the title analyst or data scientist, software engineer, <laughs> data engineer, and so on and so forth, uh, has really grown dramatically in the last... I'd say 20 years or so. Uh, I'm very fortunate in that. Obviously, this is my career. And so it's uh, it's worked out very well for me that this new subsection of baseball exists now. Uh, it's something that I now am lucky enough to do every day. And do the players use it often or is it mostly the coaches telling the players what they're studying? So it, it generally we filter things down through the coaches. So our job from the front office is to use the data that we have to figure out ways that either we can help make the players we already have better mm -hmm. or figure out which other players, maybe players we don't have yet, we might want to bring to our team. Uh, but once we have them, the coaches are the primary ones who are responsible for coaching players. And so it's our job then to provide the coaches with the information that they need to go and talk to the players. In this day and age, you've got a whole lot of coaches that have been around this type of stuff for a very long time. And so right. coaches often will seek it out. They'll come to us and they'll say, hey, what do you have on this guy? Or what do you got on that mm. guy? And, uh, then it's our job to be ready with an answer, to be able to describe that player in terms of the data. And then the coach can try to marry that with what they have from the more traditional baseball background. And so I guess, what is the probability that the probability actually works? Have you you're seen success in that? Yeah, so I mean, that's why probabilities are challenging. And probabilities can be frustrating because mm -hmm. oftentimes we want to be able to give certainties and we can't. Uh, and yeah, and it's, like tr that. it's true in life, it's true in baseball. Uh, and so you can have the best hitter in the game up at the plate or the best pitcher in the game on the mound. Uh, I actually think uh, we at the Mets are fortunate enough to employ the best pitcher in the game in Jacob deGrom. Uh, and yet you can never guarantee anything. You can never guarantee the best hitter is going to hit a home run. You can never guarantee that the best pitcher is going to get a strikeout. Uh, there's a probability that each of those things will happen but that means there's a probability that it won't happen. And it's our job to at the very least quantify that, that can help us make smarter decisions. But ultimately then it's up to the players on the field. 
So let's go to the faith part, because I love what you just said about the uncertainties, right? There always is that uncertainty. And I think uh, faith deals a lot with uncertainty. And often people find faith during uncertain times. But I think a big part of my job actually to allow people to find faith during certain times as well, to be grateful. Um, Let's go back to your faith journey. I know you grew up in the Philadelphia area, Montgomery County. And uh, I believe you even went to Jewish summer camp in the Poconos. Was that Ramah? That's right. I went to Camp Harlem, uh, one of the URJ camps in the Poconos. Yes. Got it. So what was your faith background growing up and uh, how did that play part in your upbringing? Yeah, it was a huge part of my upbringing. (laughs) I I grew up uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs in Montgomery County, and uh, we were very active members of Congregation Bethor, uh, which uh, at the time was at Spring House. Now I was in Maple Glen, Pennsylvania. Uh, My mom was president of the synagogue. All five of us, my parents, myself, my two sisters were very involved. I went to Camp Harlem, like I mentioned, my sisters went there as well. And so uh, not just you know, during the school year and all of that, but uh, through bar mitzvah, through confirmation, through five summers at camp, uh, it was it was always part of who we were. And e- even after uh, heading out of Philadelphia, I uh, was very involved at Harvard Hillel. I used to play guitar for the Reform Minion there on, uh, on Friday nights and do you do that uh, so, for the Mets minion now? Play the guitar for Friday nights? <laughs> I don't know if we have one of those. Oh, I got to uh, check it out. One yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's uh, that, that's been a part of my life since, well, frankly, since before I can remember. And you go to Harvard Hillel, you then get into the analytics uh, aspects, and then actually, I believe in LA, you meet your Beshert, your your beloved, uh, Rabbi Shana Golko, who I've had the pleasure of working with out here in Los Angeles. Um now you have the faith and the baseball together. What is that? Is there any combination? Are they separate? And I know you uh, worked on some interesting projects actually with Rabbi Golko, specifically the virtual dreidel and I believe uh, the Shabbatograms during COVID. So how did the faith aspect uh, work with your analytics or sort of technological piece to uh, bring some joy during some difficult times over these past few years? Yeah. Uh, so, right. Yeah, like you mentioned, uh, I'm now uh, engaged to, uh, to engaged, a rabbi. Sorry. So that uh, that definitely, you know, you want to talk about my own you know, journey with Judaism, that that uh, is clearly the next big part of that is that I get to serve the role. Uh, we're going with Rebbitzman. So the, you know, Rebbitzman is the, the classic phrase that's used. I'm also married to a rabbi, so I'm in that boat too. There you go. So you see so both yes. a rabbi and a Rebbitzman. You get it. Um, uh, and so uh, so that's been just, just wonderful. It, one of the cool things about our two jobs, they're very unique jobs. Uh, is that in some sense, they are both, they both have spectator involvement. Uh, they are not mm-hmm. passive. This is not the sort of situation where you can only say, play, take your kid to work day on the day you can take your kid to work. Uh, that There are always members of the community that are welcomed to both. And so what that has meant for us is that I often get to accompany her to synagogue and uh, be there uh, in the pews as she's leading a Shabbat service or leading a high holiday service or whatever it may be, uh, uh, leading a 20s, 30s program. And then she has often got to come to first Dodger Stadium uh, and now City Field, uh, which have been my two offices over the last few years, uh, and gets to to watch the games play out. Uh, and so that for us has been just really, really special and wonderful that we get to be, I think, much more a part of each other's jobs because they inherently are jobs that are so welcoming uh, to members of the community to come in and uh, and enjoy whatever's going on, whether it's a service or whether it's a ball game. Um, in terms of how they intertwine, right? So you mentioned uh, during the pandemic, we were able to kind of put our heads together and uh, come up with some rather uh, rather unique websites. 
uh, that took advantage of my ability to code and her ability to uh, have an understanding of Judaism and connections throughout the Jewish community. So uh, we built Shabbatograms, which was a way for uh, Jews, uh, Jewish teens, kids who are used to sending paper Shabbatograms at camp mm. to wish each other a Shabbat Shalom might not be able to do that during the pandemic uh, with you know, camps, a lot of them being canceled in 2020. Uh, and so it was a way of sending virtual Shabbatograms to, to one another each Friday. Uh, and then virtual dreidel that came about during Hanukkah 2020, the first Hanukkah of the pandemic, uh, where it was a way for people to, in real time, play dreidel against one another, uh, even if they couldn't physically be right there next to each other. So you mentioned spectators being an important piece of both your jobs. Obviously, uh, we want a congregation. There's lots of art. There was a New York Times article this past week telling uh, churches and synagogues to shut off their live stream and get people right back in the building. What was it like? Uh, I believe you were with. Uh, the Dodgers at that time, um, when there were no fans in the stands, I believe that was the year when they won the World Series. What is the role that you see as a general uh, assistant general manager in Major League Baseball of the spectator? Is it just purely entertainment, or is there a symbiotic relationship between the two? It, so it was weird. I mean, I think every industry was affected by this. I can't mm -hmm. think of one that wasn't. <laughs> uh, but no doubt, when you talk about uh, areas of life that have people coming in on a regular basis, whether that's uh, worshipers, whether that's fans, uh, it's bizarre to suddenly go into this pandemic era. And so, you know, for my fiance, that meant a lot of Zoom services, something I'm sure you are quite familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for us, uh, you mentioned that was the year we won the World Series. Uh, if you told me a year before that, that the Dodgers who I'd worked for, for, you know, five, six seasons would win the World Series and I would be watching it by television, uh, I would have said that there's, there's no way, but you know, I chose, uh, this was before anybody was vaccinated. This was in 2020. And so I chose, uh, for safety reasons to stay home, but, uh, that was, that was bizarre. Uh, I mean, it was, don't get me wrong. It was wonderful. That was the culmination of years and years of efforts from myself and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of colleagues. Uh, but still there was something totally strange about, watching it, you know, it's not being played at Dodger Stadium. It also wasn't right. being played in Tampa, which was the team we were playing. It was played at a neutral site, uh, right. which was due to pandemic restrictions. So, uh, you know, there's certainly people and industries that were affected far more than mine. Uh, but there's no doubt that baseball is on the list of groups that were affected by this. And then Seth Greenberg, also a college basketball analyst on ESPN, when uh, I had him on the show, he talked about the idea that the locker room is his sanctuary. Um, maybe you can take us into the major league locker room and how perhaps sometimes that actually is sacred space, which creates sacred community as well. Oh, it, it's definitely sacred. So, I mean, if you define a sacred space as uh, this is the, the hub of what we do, this is important that you should not go in there uh, in a disrespectful manner. You should go in ready to contribute something, ready to be mm -hmm. humble. Uh, all of those things can apply to any sacred space and a locker room is, is no different. You don't walk into a major league locker room just because, uh, you know, you want to put your feet up on a couch. You're there. If you're a member of the front office, you're there to be a representative of that organization. And so everything you do uh, should be reflective of how you want the culture in that organization to be and how you talk to people, how you treat people, how you act. Uh, and from the analytics side, how you convey information in a uh, in an intelligent, prepared, and respectful manner. So analytics is very 
transactional, right? You get a stat, you learn about it, you do it. Maybe you can talk about a little of the uh, humanity of the baseball side, some relational piece, maybe some charitable things that you've seen, some of the uh, players that we know about that we don't hear about these stories on TV, sort of behind the scenes of like what makes that uh, relationship sacred and allows and even um, has these players desiring to make a difference in the world. It's true. The, uh, the way that analysts are trained to look at players is often through the lens of numbers. Uh, that's, that's what our piece of the puzzle is. Everyone brings their piece. Player development is about training players in the minor leagues and amateur scouting is about finding the next stars in high school and college. And the coaches are, are about guiding these players in, into young men and teaching them how to perform on the field and, and off the field as well. Uh, but the analysts were there to analyze the data. That, that is what our piece of the puzzle is. And so it's very important if that's your full-time job, to mm -hmm. always remember that these are not ID numbers. These are, you know, they're uh, they're they're not just their uniform number. These are uh, are people. These are human beings. Uh, it's a real shame that a lot of the time, what makes the headlines will be when an individual player does something bad. Uh, mm -hmm. And look, uh, if you know, it's not on the fault of the journalist. If I were a journalist, you do the same thing because that's what makes the news. That's newsworthy. Uh, but the fact of the matter is what doesn't make the news all the time is the vast, vast majority of these people are really good, decent people. You get to know it immediately when you start talking to them. Uh, they're there, they're doing their best at their chosen profession, which they happen to be among the best in the world at. Nobody right. reaches major league baseball if they're not. Um, and, you know, the vast, vast majority of them are out there doing the very best they can at it. It's a hard job in a lot of ways. And it's a hard path to get there because uh, for all the fame and glamour and riches that come with being in the majors for a sustained period of time, that's not always the case as they're struggling through high school baseball and college baseball and all the way up trying to make it. Uh, and so, yes, I do look at a lot of numbers. That's my job. It's my job to analyze the data. Uh, that's a key part of what makes all 30 front offices run. Uh, but there are human beings behind these numbers and that ultimately guides every decision we make. So when you talk about people, when you talk about numbers, um, and let's talk about the New York Mets for a moment, because actually I go back to Dan Shulman again, one of the best uh, baseball announcers around. Um, he was announcing a baseball game um, when Osama bin Laden was actually caught. And he had to announce to the country that this was happening. And he told me that in his ear, you know, they're telling him about Osama bin Laden and here he is on ESPN saying, and there's a ground out to second and he throws the first. And at that moment, he became representative of the American people, not just a journalist, but like a huge historic moment. Um, how do you see the role of sports playing a significant role outside of the field, right? Um, I mean, we talked about the racial piece and people were having the um, equality on their jerseys last year through basketball or different things like that. What do you see the role of athletes playing a larger role in um, making the society a little better place? Oh, I, I uh, going back to the Dan Schulman example, I remember that game well. Uh, so I grew up. And he was with Bobby Valentine uh, doing that, who coached right, the, who the manager of the Mets at the time. Right. Of so I grew up, like I said, in the Philadelphia area. Oh, right, um, and that was a Phillies Mets Sunday night baseball game. Yes. Uh, so I, I was watching that broadcast, and uh, yeah, it was one of the more. <laughs> Well, it's certainly one of the more memorable moments and just a, you know, a flood of emotions coming through. Uh, the thing about sports is that they 
they're captivating. And once, once you have something that's captivating, you by definition have an audience, uh, mm -hmm. you have a megaphone. And once you have a megaphone, then people who choose to use that megaphone uh, are able to reach a much wider audience than they would otherwise. And so we see this a lot. We see this uh, not just in sports, but, you know, entertainers in, in Hollywood and on Broadway and, you know, anybody else that is fortunate enough to have a set of extraordinary talents to have that kind of megaphone then has the opportunity, if they so wish, to use that for however they see fit. Especially that's true uh, in the last decade or so with the explosion of social media, that gives them an even bigger megaphone than they would have otherwise had. Um, but that's not to say that this starts in the last decade. This is something that goes back, you know, a long ways where you have pro athletes uh, that are speaking out and, uh, uh, and speaking on behalf of, of certain causes, or just, you know, you take the, the prototypical example of Jackie Robinson, just their very presence many times right. and unspoken uh, speaks volumes about, how society should and shouldn't act. And so you see a cause in the near future that you say, you know what, or is there, is there a discussion in the front office to say, you know what, the Mets stand for this or the Dodgers stand for this and that's what we're going to do? Or is it sort of players' freedom to allow them to um, partake in those causes? So I think both. Uh, there's like the official Mets side. We've got uh, you know, well beyond baseball operations, there's a whole rest of the organization that has many different arms uh, and many different departments. One of which is is a newer one is the Amazing Mets Foundation. Uh, and the Dodgers had the same thing. They had a foundation as well. Uh, and so uh, a, a lot of these, uh, you know, official things that come from the New York Mets organization will come from, you know, we've got a group of people whose entire job is to use the resources and fame and, you know, financial wealth at the disposal of the Mets to make a difference in the community. But then, right, you also have individual players who often have, you know, very large megaphones as well. Uh, and will often, you know, if they choose to, that, that's up to each person, but they can, right. you know, speak out beyond that on, on things that are particularly important to them. We've seen this all the time, not just in baseball. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about this in football and in basketball, uh, to some degree in hockey as well. Uh, in recent years of players that, you know, they're not waiting for the cue from the organization. If they have something that they want to share uh, about how they feel we should make the world a better place, they're going to go ahead and do that. Uh, and, you know, it, um, it takes a lot of bravery. Like doing these things uh, under the guise of an organization is one thing, but going out on a limb, whoever the right. first person is out on the limb, that, uh, you know, it takes a lot of guts. So I just saw an interesting article uh, over the last two days. Uh, I know a former Met just passed away, but Jeff Innes, I believe mm -hmm. is correct, from cancer yeah. at 59 years old. And I know Mike Piazza wrote a beautiful, touching tribute to him. And, and there was an interesting quote that talked about Jeff Innes that um, he saw himself as not a baseball player, but as a human being. And I thought that was a, a beautiful thing, that he baseball was part of his life, but it wasn't his entire life. Um, how do you see sometimes the separation between an athlete and a human being? It's a really important point, especially because in the grand scheme of things, baseball careers, sports careers are short sure, right. because you're only at that peak of your physical ability for some period of time. You know, even uh, Tom Brady, who just retired this past week, you know, did he, he really, he actually did this time. It was a false start. And then, okay, just uh, and uh, you know, he's still in, in his forties and hopefully has a, a long, healthy, happy life ahead of him. Um, 
that's that's different from many professions. Many professions, the average retirement age is uh, is significantly older, and that's just due to the physical demands of being a pro athlete who is among the very best in the world. And so, yeah, it is important to remember there is a a life before baseball. There is a life after baseball. Mm-hmm. There's a life during baseball. Right. Uh, and uh, you know, right now as we speak, we're in the off season, uh, and this is a time where you know. It, there aren't the rigorous day-to-day demands on players in terms of spring training and travel and potentially postseason and all of that. And so this is a time where, you know, players will go back to their homes for those who have families, they'll be able to spend more time with them. And uh, you know, that's all part of what makes up a person. The fact that they play baseball is, is their job. It's a big part of their life. Uh, But I don't know that for just about anyone, you would say it's their entire life. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a significant part of their life. So it's also a significant part of their year, right? Over 180 games of baseball. Um, it's not like college football where you lose that first game and you're basically out of the college football playoff. Um, even the NFL, a couple of games, you might, you know, miss the playoffs. But college baseball, that's or major league baseball, that's a long haul. And I also see that as a sort of connection to the faith, right? Our faith is a, is a long haul. If you just take one moment in faith, when I think of Shabbat service, there's somebody saying the mourner's Kaddish, there's somebody having an anniversary, there's somebody having a yard site for an anniversary of a loved one's death, there's somebody selling a birthday, and there's somebody celebrating a wedding. And they're all there in the same moment, right? How do you look at the long arc of that baseball season and realizing there's that short-term goal, but like, you know, it's not just about the guy's going to pitch a curveball or a, a slider, but the long arc of data analytics, how do you, how do you work on that strategy? What I try to do uh, to the very best of my ability and what I think many good clubhouses do is you have to remember that it's a long season, uh, that opening day is going to come around uh, and usually late March, early April. And uh, whenever it does, half the teams will lose uh, across the 30 clubs and suddenly half the teams can't be undefeated for the year. And Give it another week or two, and I can almost guarantee nobody will be undefeated. And give it an entire season, and the very, very best team in baseball, the best team, is going to lose at least 50 times, and maybe 60. Uh, depends on, on the year. Um, and it's it's hard to have the right combination of how down to get after a loss. Mm-hmm. Not be so over-the-top depressed about a single loss if you're going to have them at least 50 times a year and probably more. But on the other hand, you do have to take a step back and learn from the losses and think, well, what could we have done better? Therefore, what can we do better in the next game? And so it's tough, but there is that that fine line between the two where, you know, you need to have the, um, you can't have the emotional roller coaster uh, throughout an entire season where you're that high and that low after every game, but there needs to be enough so that you're constantly asking yourselves, how can we improve? I mean, a batting champion, like maybe that's 400, right? Okay, free throw percentage, you want to get 80, 90%, right? But you don't see a stat in baseball that's like 80, 90%. Basically, a failing stat is an amazing stat. So um, yeah. that idea of the high and low is really, really fascinating. Um, we talked about how you bring faith into baseball, but uh, Rabbi Solomon Schechter, one of the founders of the conservative movement, he once said that in order to be a rabbi in America, you need to he said you need to play baseball. I like to say you need to know about baseball. Uh, do you think that's true in terms of what baseball represents as part of the American experience? And he was speaking to uh, 
an immigrant population of Jews that were just coming over here in the early 1900s. What does baseball mean to this country and America's pastime? It's a really, uh, I like the quote a lot. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have to play baseball, but I do agree that uh, there's something to be said for knowing something about the game because it is such a quintessentially American pastime. And I think that actually goes to explain why uh, there has constantly over the years been a real uh, interest in the game among new immigrant communities. And that mm. includes uh, many Jewish immigrants, uh, many mm. of whom came over uh, like many members of my family did in the earlier parts of the 20th century. And they were yearning a hundred years ago, or for more people who came more recently, they were yearning whenever they came to be a part of this society. And one of the ways you do that is you get to know what the sources of entertainment are for that society. And baseball right. has consistently been one of the biggest ones. And so I think that does go to explain how you had such a, a huge initial bump in interest in the game. And then you had players along the way, the Sandy Koufaxes of the world that led to even further bumps where, you know, if you can see yourself represented among the players, you're more likely to be more interested. Um, and I think that that uh, collection of things has been the primary driver as to why there is a real interest in baseball uh, from the Jewish community, from many other communities uh, is because there is something quintessentially American about it. And one of the incredible things about this country is that we allow newcomers to become quintessentially American. Right. So you worked in, have worked or continue to work in two major metropolitan areas, but also have basically the two largest Jewish communities in this country and not only this country, but outside of the land of Israel. You mentioned Sandy Koufax, obviously, with the Yom Kippur thing. Obviously, Sean Green was part of the Dodgers. Yeah. Um, I know the Dodgers and I know the Phillies. And I know the Mets. They have Jewish Heritage Day. What does something like that mean uh, to the team, but also to the community of th those communities outside of the park when they come in, when they hear hot tikva, when they see a kosher hot dog uh, stand? You know, obviously the Yankees have uh, their thing, the Mets have uh, their thing. What does that mean to the community in terms of buy-in and connection to the sport? Yeah, so it's it's, it's a good setup. The uh, uh, Jeff's kosher hot dog stand in uh, Los oh, Angeles, and then there's the a, a a great stand, not just hot dogs, but a lot more than that at uh, at City Field. So pretty good options at both. Um, but, uh, uh, and still plenty more food that I'm going to have to try at City Field as, uh, as the years go by, but, uh, no, it, it means a lot. And you can see it when you look around at the stadium, because oftentimes, uh, they will associate that with some giveaway. And so you see a lot of people who are very proudly wearing whatever mm -hmm. it is that year. Uh, I, myself from previous giveaway days and the owner of, uh, some Dodgers keep and some Dodgers in Hebrew t-shirts and, uh, and things of that nature. And I would be uh, uh, not surprised at all if I wind up with some similar Mets gear, uh, some paraphernalia in Hebrew, uh, because, you know, it's, it's a way of expressing pride on that day. And it's, it's why these teams do this for all sorts of different communities through the year. And right, typically uh, some sort of, uh, whether it's, you know, celebrating uh, Israel or Jewish heritage is often one of the days on the calendar. And actually, Dr. Jeff Gurak, he's a professor of American Jewish history at Yeshiva University. He explains that you can learn about the American experience through sports. And he actually compared the Sandy Koufax example to uh, many years before that of Hank Greenberg, um, who also didn't play in Yom Kippur, um, to, I believe, in the 86 Mets, when the Jewish community was outraged that the game was going to be on Kol Nidre and they moved the game up. And so first it was, you know... Um, gearing towards the sports, but then the sports team actually reacted to the community around them to make those changes. 
Um, what is the outreach? Is there any outreach um, outside of the stadium with those communities? And if so, how does that work? So I got a good good young poor story for you. I don't know if this is exactly sure. answering the question, but I feel it's uh, uh, might, might be a better answer. And a young poor story in baseball keeps the people awake. We're good. So uh, <laughs> was working for the Dodgers one year. It was during the playoffs. And uh, there was a game uh, the afternoon of Cole Nidre. And uh, so as for my own practices, I, uh, you know, first of all, I want to attend services, but also I'm not going to be in my place of work on, uh, on Yom Kippur due, due to, to my level of observance. And so uh, I was going to need to be out of there by, you know, before sunset. That was going to be my standard for myself. Uh, and uh, it was a playoff game and the game was tied. Uh, and... Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm thinking, oh man, this is this is pretty clearly gone to extras, and I'll miss the end of the playoff game. Uh, and it turns out uh, that then in the eighth inning, bottom of the eighth, is a Dodger Stadium. Uh, Chase Utley, who uh, is it's an interesting one. He's probably the most beloved player uh, for many Phillies fans. Uh, might be public enemy number one for many Mets fans. Uh, also pretty beloved now by Dodger fans because he had some years there as well. Uh, so a lot of strong opinions about him. Uh, but he comes up and uh, and has the go-ahead single in the bottom of the eighth. Kenley Jansen closes out in the ninth. I hop straight in the car. Uh, I drive through. Uh, it was a McDonald's drive-through because that was the only thing I could find. That you know, I, I couldn't. I didn't have time to get out of the car. Uh, got to services, ran in. You know, finished my meal as I'm walking in, and and made it on time for the beginning of Cole Nidre. Uh So uh, you you bring up Young Kapoor and baseball, and, and my mind immediately goes to that story. Actually, a couple years ago, I was at the Dodgers Phillies. Uh, I believe it was the NLCS. Pedro yep. Martinez on the mound, and there was like probably almost a minion of rabbis in that section. And uh, Shul began at 6 p.m. Uh, we got to the chapel at 5:59, and uh, it was perfect <laughs> timing. It's hard to get out of it's hard to get out of Cesar, Cesar Chavez Ravine on a Friday afternoon, uh, yes. but. Uh, we had the miracle of the sea splitting on the 101 that day, so it was great. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back to this book for one second. If you're uh, watching Oscar Metrics, definitely check out this book before the Oscars and see how he does it. Um, you mentioned these like strange corollaries that most people wouldn't expect. You expect, you know, best actor wins best picture. But you mentioned the film editing, how that really can like foretell the future of who will win um, the best movie. Um, maybe explain just how that works in the movies and then maybe how that works in baseball, how some like obscure detail, you don't realize that it will relate to something bigger that way, that it's not just about swings and strikes and balls. Yeah. So, right. Starting on the film side, you've got now 23 categories at the Oscars and each one is related to the other to some degree. And the reason that even two relatively dissimilar categories are related uh, is the voters who like a given movie are just more likely to vote for it up and down the ballot, regardless of the category. But certain categories are more related than others. And so what math can help us do without painstakingly going through every pair of categories, which would be a pretty big number, uh, it can help us uh, rather quickly figure out which categories are more related to one another. That is a crucial principle for Oscar prediction, uh, because we don't know who any of the winners are going to be before the night starts, but we do know who all the nominees are. And so when those nominees come out, they actually tell us something about which nominees in other categories are more likely to win. And that's more data that we can use. Baseball is the same way. There's a lot of stuff about how the game's going to play out that we don't know before the first pitch is thrown. But we do kind of know, almost like a chessboard being set up, we know who all the pieces are and how they're 
possibly going to move. Uh, and so we know the entire lineup of both sides and what the players on the opposing team have historically done. Uh, and so that can become very important information when figuring out how we can best respond, how our hitters can respond to their pitchers, how our pitchers can respond to their hitters. So I want to ask you a baseball question based on Israel in the Olympics this past year, and then okay. uh, a little prediction in terms of what you see in Major League Baseball this year. Um, Israel obviously made the Olympics this year, the first time they've ever had a baseball team. Many of those were, in fact, former major leaguers. Um, if you did follow that story at all, what do you see the impact of that um, in terms of mostly American Jews representing the state of Israel in the sport of baseball, which is also new to the Olympics as well? Yeah, that, that was really fun to watch. Uh, I think that anytime you have the ability to expand the reach of the game around the world, uh, that that's a great thing for the sport. Uh, it's, you know, I'm biased as somebody who really loves baseball. I, I think that, you know, that's great for any new communities that previously haven't been as exposed to it. And so when you specifically when you watch you know, Team Israel going and, uh, and and making the Olympics in Tokyo and succeeding there. Uh, that was a really special thing to see because you've got now uh, an entire group of people, an entire country that previously hadn't thought of themselves as Olympic athletes in baseball because they hadn't been previously, and now they get to see themselves in that. And so that was uh, just really fun, really exciting to follow that team. Um, uh, in terms, you, what was the next one you want a prediction on this year? Oh, not, not yet. So now okay. what is the message actually to younger people? So we actually had some of those baseball uh, Israeli Olympians who live out in L.A. They came to Sinai Temple. They spoke to our kids nice. basically saying, like, you kids who are 10, 11 years old playing Little League, one day, just because you're part of this community here at Sinai Temple, part of the L.A. Jewish community, you can play in the Olympics for the state of Israel. Um, were you planning to play in the major leagues as a kid? Were you planning to go into analytics? What was your path? And um, what is the message to kids who, you know, the, the probability, and maybe you can tell us the probability of actually making the major leagues as a player. But if that's not so high, then what is the next step that you can say, you know what, you don't want to be involved with sports on a high level. You can do this too. Oh, yeah. I know. I'll, I'll be totally honest. I've known from a young age I was not a future major league baseball player. I, I, I enjoyed playing the game. <laughs> I played Little League for 11 years. Uh, but no, never at a level where, oh, where anyone was confusing me for a future major league baseball player. Uh, for, for me, it was it was a fun thing to do with my friends, and, and that was always going to be the extent of it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the cool thing about sports is there are thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that make their living off of sports in ways other than just playing on the field. Uh, obviously, we have things that are more baseball adjacent, my own job or coaches or scouts or anything like that, but a whole nother wealth of people that work in front offices, you know, from lawyers to HR reps to graphic designers to uh, ticket salespeople to, you know, you name it. There's just a, a ton of uh, people that all work behind the scenes to make this show happen. Then add on everybody who doesn't necessarily work specifically for a team, but you've got people in the commissioner's office. You've got people in all types of media, in radio and in print and uh, on television. And you've got people that are in businesses surrounding the stadiums that, only exist because they are part of the ecosystem that baseball creates. And so there are so many different ways for people that do like sports, but maybe like me or not major league baseball players to get involved if that's the profession that they choose. So one last question before the prediction. Um, I've asked a lot of other athletes and coaches and managers about this, um, about prayer in the locker room or on the field. 
Um, often there's chaplains and uh, I just walked to an NBA player last week and they said actually one hour before the game, there's chapel time for both teams. Is there any type of uh, prayer or faith presence that happens, um, you know, from the time a person gets to the field until the time uh, the lights are off uh, in the field? Or is that sort of up to their own? Uh, no, a, a number of teams do have that, do have something that's more uh, more formal than just their own personal private prayer. Uh, a number of teams will have chaplains who either part-time or full-time will travel with the team. A number of them also will have groups. Uh, you know, there will be a number of players that will seek each other out because they all have mm-hmm. some religious background and they want to get together to to have a service. The uh, I'll admit the one I was most envious of uh, was on Sunday mornings before a Sunday day game at Dodger Stadium. Uh, Vince Scully, back when he was still the announcer of the Dodgers, used to actually lead uh, a prayer service uh, for mm-hmm. uh, for members of the Catholic community who were working at the game and therefore had to, uh, they couldn't be in church. They had to be at the ballpark because there was a one o'clock first pitch. Uh, and, you know, that that was one to get to to hear that voice reading to you from the scripture. Yeah, I can't, <laughs> can't, uh, can't imagine anything much better than that. But, uh, uh, but no, there, there is a lot of that, that, a real presence of that that does take place because there are so many people uh, from all faiths that are working in the game and therefore want to have a place to, uh, even if they can't necessarily make it to church or shul or mosque or wherever, you know, that want to still be able to have a a place to pray. Um, So maybe one Oscar prediction, anything uh, coming up here? And then the baseball prediction. It's it's early this year. If you ask me right now, and we're talking, you know, early February, uh, I would say it's looking like Power of the Dog or Belfast are sort of the two most likely best picture frontrunners. Um, but you're asking me before the nominations even come out. And so if we find out uh, next week when the nominations come out that one of them uh, say didn't get that best director nomination or didn't get that best film editing nomination or maybe fewer acting nominations than were expected, no screenplay nominate, you know, things like that, that could start to leave room for West Side Story, for mm-hmm. Dune, for, you know, one of these other top contenders that, you know, King Richard or Coda that could start to sneak its way in and try to start to climb up that list. So we've still got uh, about six or seven weeks or so and still plenty of time to change those standings. And then what about the Mets? What are you excited about? What can Mets fans be excited about? And just in general, what can what are we going to see about Major League Baseball that's going to excite the American populace this year? Uh, this is a very exciting year to be a Mets fan. I, I'm, I feel very, I'm not just, that might sound like a line. I'm just saying it's not just a line. I do yeah. think that this year in particular, uh, there's a lot of returning faces that we're really optimistic about. You know, everybody knows those names from DeGrom to Lindor to Alonzo, but also a whole lot of new names that are very exciting. You know, Max Scherzer, of course, is coming mm-hmm. over from uh, where you are, from Los Angeles over to uh, the Mets and Marcana and Starling Marte and Eduardo Escobar, uh, a whole number of, uh, you know, new faces and names that people at City Field are going to get pretty happy cheering for, I think, from day one. Uh, so so from the Mets side in particular, yeah, I think there's a lot to be excited about. From the fan side, uh, I think it's also just a really exciting year as we continue, fingers crossed, to emerge from the pandemic uh, right. to, for people, more and more people to who are fully vaccinated or otherwise feel comfortable coming to ball games to be able to partake in that. Uh, I think is just going to be one of those really happy signs of life returning to the normal that it could be, uh, you know, if we keep the pandemic under control. Absolutely. 
Uh, we are so excited here on Rabbi on the Sidelines to not only hear Oscar predictions, but really uh, be excited for the upcoming baseball season, what it means to America, what it means to the uh, Jewish community, what it means to the faith community. We are so grateful to have Ben Zausmer, Assistant General Manager of the New York Mets and author of Oscar Metrics. Ben, it's a pleasure, and uh, we look forward when the Mets return out here to the West Coast and the Dodgers uh, to having you and, uh, of course, uh, Rabbi Golko uh, here at Sinai Temple. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Have a great day.